How many are glad you're saved? Good to be in the house of God. 1 Corinthians 15, and um, we've been covering lessons uh, about the resurrection of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, I want to do this. I want to bring this again. This is the last lesson that I'll be able to bring uh, about the resurrection before we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior on Easter or Resurrection Sunday. Uh, but uh, as you know, in the book of uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians, it was written to a church. This, these two books were written to a church that was in a mess. The church had a mess. They had five major issues that they were messed up on. They were messed up morally. They were messed up doctrinally. Uh, they had all things out of order. And the Apostle Paul writes the book of 1 Corinthians to them, follows up with the book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, Titus uh, was the one that actually de- delivered the, uh, first, the book of 1 Corinthians to them, read it, and then the 2 Corinthians uh, book was given to them. Now, they were in a mess. Uh, there, there was sexual immorality in the church, the misuse of the Lord's Supper. There was division in the church. They were biting each other. They were, uh, they were just backbiting the Apostle Paul. I mean, this, you know, the, the typical Baptist church, all right, is it's, it's what it was. No, uh, kidding a little bit, but uh, no, actually not. Uh, but, uh, but there is something that we can typically read over uh, and and as as um, it's a, but it's a major issue that they had problems with, and we typically read over that, and we don't name them among the five major issues that the church had. And uh, it's found here in the book of First Corinthians. Uh, we call this the resurrection chapter. Uh, there's a lot of references to death in this chapter, and of course, the hope of the resurrection is spelled out pretty clear uh, here in this chapter. Pick it up in verse number one. And uh, it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep the memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I deliver unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. And was seen of Cephas, then the twelve. After that, he was seen of, about, of above 500 brethren at once, whom the greater part remain under this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, and then all the apostles, and the last of all, he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul begins to give his testimony between verses 9 down through verse 11. But if you pick it up in verse number 12, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, now listen to this phrase here, How say some among you that are there, that, uh, that, excuse me, among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? So apparently there were some that just didn't believe that there was a resurrection of the dead inside the church of Corinth. And we don't really name this among the major problems, but I could say this way. That's a major issue. If, if you do not believe in a resurrection, uh, that opens up a huge problem for the church, a huge problem for a believer. And, uh, and so you'll find that the Apostle Paul, beginning to try to explain this, uses a a what-if scenario. And uh, you'll find the word if in these verses here. Look at verse number 13. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, look in verse number 14. And if Christ be not risen, verse 16. For if the dead rise not, verse 17. And if Christ be not raised, and then verse 19 if in this life only we have hope in Christ. So there's a what-if scenario given to this false belief that there's no resurrection. If that's so, he said, then this will be evident. This will be, unfortunately, the reality. And so when you look at this, there's a lot here. We're going, to, we're going to use it in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a question that could be more, in a sense, in a positive uh, note. 
but answer the same questions that are given here. There's six of them. By the way, there are six basic needs that all humans have that are represented in this passage of Scripture. And I want to help you today. If you're here this morning, say, Pastor, if I died this morning, I'm not sure I'd go to heaven. That is a basic need, and we're going to talk about that. That when you leave here, you can know without a shadow of a doubt that you're on your way to heaven. And, uh, and we hope and pray that that would be the case for many here today that get saved. So let's ask the Lord's blessings as we turn our hearts to the Lord and uh, ask God to really open this passage of Scripture to us. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to preach to people today. We pray that you bless your people, the ones that are in your pasture, the ones that are in your family. We thank you, Lord, for the resurrection, for the ones that are perhaps not here, uh, that are here today that are not saved, that, Lord, they would get saved before it's eternally too late. Plaguing questions, Lord, that, that uh, penetrate our hearts in the darkness of the night could be answered with the light of God's word. So I do pray you'd help us, guide us, and bless us, and help us to have truth in our hearts today. Apply it to our lives, and I pray you would help us to be honest with ourselves and let the word of God do a work that only it can do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you look in verse number 20, you'll find here that the whole paragraph changes with this statement, but now is Christ risen from the dead. So can we just use this uh, working through each one of these six major questions and longings of every human being is this phrase, since Christ has risen from the dead or because of the resurrection, what does that mean to me? What does that mean to us? And so you find here uh, that that phrase is is, is now the declaration that Jesus Christ did indeed come out of that grave. So let's unpack these. Look at verse number 12 again. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, now listen to this, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith is also vain? Yea, Uh, We are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins, and they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. So Paul now is going to use the scenario that if Christ is not resurrected, there are some major, major longings that every human being has that cannot be satisfied. And how about you, but there's a lot of hurting people in this world. And you'll find that these six areas touch every man that has ever been born since Adam and Eve. Now, the need we see here that God has really done for us is the rising of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we see that uh, the Apostle Paul is asking a very negative way, if it's not true, boy, then this is not going to happen. And so what are these basic needs that humans have? What are these basic issues that the resurrection of Jesus Christ satisfies? Number one is that because of the resurrection, we are forgiven of our sins. Because of the resurrection, we have access to forgiveness of our sins. Let's look through this, if you would. Look at verse number 17. The Bible says here, And if Christ be not raised, and we're going to kind of take it out of order to maybe follow for us a little bit more logical explanation for our salvation. And if Christ be not raised, watch this, your faith is vain. Now watch this. Ye are yet in your sins. So we can say positively that because of the resurrection, we are forgiven of our sins. We have access to forgiveness. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I put this first because the basic need and longing for every person that's ever been born is to be forgiven. Anyone that's ever been born has need of forgiveness. 
It's, the, it's man's answer for the plaguing sin question that is in this world. As I mentioned last week in Romans 5.12, the Bible says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, therefore death passed upon, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. So God's people understand the Bible declares that man is a sinner when they're born. They're born into sin. And, the, and it's very clear that because of one man's disobedience, because of the transgression of one man being Adam, that sin, the Bible says, entered into the world. Uh, Tim Crum and I were talking about this. and It was a very interesting conversation. He says, wait a minute, Pastor. How could the act of disobedience by Adam uh, be the, if he would, catalyst for the sin to enter into the world. In other words, sin was not in the world until Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit that what God told them not to eat of in Genesis chapter number two. When Satan was in the world, how about that? That's one of those theological snafus. Wait a minute, Satan was in the serpent in the world, and yet sin was not in the world. Very interesting thought. Now, if you thought, think about this, the serpent in and of itself, the Bible says, was more subtle than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't even like the looks of a snake. You know, with me, they just, they, they just creep anyone. I don't like touch. It's, it's one of those things in the military. We would have these cotton mouths. We had a one guy uh, that was, uh, uh, we were called bivouacking, and he woke up with a rattlesnake inside his sleeping bag, curled up on his chest. And you should have seen him try to get out of that sleeping bag, man. It was the funniest thing as he was getting him. He, Something's in my sleeping bag. He was a rattlesnake. Uh, I don't like snakes. But according to the Bible, that serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. So something about the serpent wasn't really alarming. It wasn't really uh, in any way uh, any kind of danger. It was more subtle. So somehow Satan embodied the serpent in the Garden of Eden and yet was in some way inoculated from infecting the world or the cosmos that man and woman were living in. So sin did not come into the world because Satan was in the world. Sin came in the world because of the disobedience of man. That's why the Bible says sin entered into the world. Then it proclaims, and death by sin. The obituaries are always going to be in the paper. People are always going to die because of sin that is in the world. And so there's a universal need in the world today, and that is that man gets forgiveness of sin. Everyone in this room, Everyone in this state, everyone in this city, everyone in this country, everyone in the world today has a universal problem, and that is a need for forgiveness of sin. And there's some say they make excuses and say some say they, they, don't, they don't have that many sins. It doesn't matter how many sins you have, you are a sinner. A dog barks, a cat meows, and a man sins. It's what we are. We're born innocent. It doesn't matter how many sins you commit or how less of a sinner you are. You are by the definition that God gives us. You are by definition a sinner. And some say, well, I don't have that many sins. And then some say, well, I have too many sins. I mean, I've got so many sins that I, I can't possibly be forgiven by God. And then there are some that are foolish enough to say, well, I don't have any sin. Now, I've met a couple of people like that. But, and I'm not being unkind here, but the Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, that if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So, so you, can't, you can't say, I'm, I'm not sinned. You're, you're, you're essentially saying, God, you're a liar by saying, I have no sin. So there's several categories of people, but can we all say this this morning, that everyone that has ever been born, everyone that is in the world today, everyone that has ever lived in this world has had one basic need. They have needed forgiveness of sin. Why is that? Because that universal need is declared in Romans chapter 3, verse number 10. For the, the Bible says, for as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Say, Pastor, wait a minute. I'm more righteous than the, my wife. And maybe some wife would say, I know my husband and I'm better than him. Are you all here? 
or I know the guy on the other side of the auditorium. I saw what he posted on Facebook, and I, I know I'm more righteous than him. It doesn't really matter what your degree of righteousness is. It's all self-righteous. And the Bible says there is none righteous. So if we can just take the Bible for what it says, there's none righteous, no, not one. Not even you. And you, and you, and you. All right? And then it follows up in verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So in addition to us having a problem of not having righteousness, we're all sinners. Now, again, we're, we're, we're piecing all this together. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, uh, 5, 12, that sin entered into the world where they're born into sin. We die because of sin. It is a universal problem, is a universal enemy. Everyone in this world is in need of forgiveness. That's why, what, because we all have sin. Now, for those that have trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the miracle work of the Lord Jesus Christ in that when you put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago, that God will not hold ever your sins against you for your judicial act that God then forgives you and justifies you when you put your faith and trust in him. That's why, that's why the Bible says in Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Now, if I, if I were to get out of this church here and I would get in my car and I get, uh, in, in, and I get on I-75 South and pick up, I don't know, one road that goes east there or west and I just travel and travel, hit the Pacific Ocean, get on a boat and continue traveling east or west and, and we just keep going and going and going until we go. I'm always going to be traveling east. All right? Unless I turn around and go west. But if I go north, you know it's really weird? You go north, it's going to get really, really cold. Then it's going to get warm again. If you go north, you're going to go south. Isn't that weird? But if you go east, you're always going to go east. Are you all here? So the Bible, the Bible makes a very clear application. Let me just make this real clear for you. He says, as far as the east is from the west, this is how far I'm going to separate your transgressions from you. That is a powerful thought. That's pretty far apart. As far as you can travel east, he says, as far as you can travel west, he says, that's, far, that's how far your sins have sinned. Listen, when you get saved, God says, I'm going to take your sins away from you. I'm going to throw them in the deepest sea. Wow, praise God for that. Seven miles, I think, is the deepest part of the deepest ocean in the Pacific. Wow. He said, There's, I'll bury it down there. You'll never see it again. Praise God for that. So here's the question that I got to the text, and I can give you several more verses to show you that. But here's the question. How is the resurrection connected to our forgiveness? Now, I think if you look at this in verse number three, watch what it says here in our text. For I deliver unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Now, watch this phrase, how that Christ died for our what? So when they place them on the cross, we're going to observe the death of our Savior tonight. When they placed him on the cross, he was essentially dying for our sins. Isaiah chapter 53 talks about being bruised for our iniquity. He was his by his stripes. We are healed. The personal pronouns in Isaiah 53 show that we were receiving the benefit of salvation through the suffering and the brutal crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Are you all here? We got that because of him. So when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says very clearly here, he died for our sins. But how does this connect to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ satisfy the deepest longing in our hearts in that I need forgiveness? Hold your finger there and go to the book of Romans chapter 4. Romans 4 and pick it up in verse 25. You're doing great. Romans chapter 4. And Paul, of course, writing here to those Romans there. And uh, I want you to know verse 25, speaking of Christ, who was delivered for our what? Offenses. Can I say it this way? You and I have offended a holy God. Say, so, Pastor, I'm not that bad. doesn't matter. You have offended God. Your sins, the Bible says, have separated us. 
So, so holding that thought there, we, the Bible says, have been delivered for our, uh, who has Jesus delivered for our offenses. Now watch this phrase, and was raised again for our what? Justification. Now wait a minute. So that means that by the death of Jesus Christ, he paid the penalty for our sins. He was able to purchase and redeem and justify the sinner through his death. And then through his resurrection, you'll find that he was able to, by by his death, by being raised uh, again from the dead, for our justification. Wow. We sang about it just a few minutes ago. Rising, he what? Justified. Okay, so that, that phrase right there, when he came out of the grave, he came out of the grave with the power to justify the one that has been forgiven. Now, forgiven and justification are interestingly different, although they're essentially the same, but there's a quite a bit of judicial differences between forgiveness and justification. Now, when you are forgiven, it, uh, it looks like you say, listen, you are guilty, but you know what? We're going to forgive you. You are, you are still a thief or you're still, uh, uh, a, 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 you're still uh, have, have transgressed this law, but you're forgiven of the law. Justification is different. Justification essentially takes that one that has been guilty and declaring them as if they've never sinned. Now, this is a powerful thought. This is the doctrine of justification, where God is able, through the finished work of Jesus Christ, to remove the sin and the transgression and the identity of being a sinner off of you and put on you something that you desperately need. Now, I'm going to read a verse for you, but you can study this later. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, speaking of Christ, for he hath made him, this is God making him, his son, to be sin for us. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he did not just die for the sinner. Watch this. He became the sinner and still was sinless. Say, how can you figure that out? I can't just, I can't, I can't reconcile that. Here's what I do know, that the sin of all mankind was placed on his body. And when he died, he died and had enough blood, had enough power to justify and forgive anyone that ever wants to be saved. Not just the chosen, not just the few, but anyone whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This limited atonement that the Calvinists like to teach is just not in the Bible. And so, in verse 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, what does that mean? So when a sinner comes to Jesus Christ, realizing they're a sinner, they need forgiveness, and they come and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I know that I'm a sinner. I know I'm going to die and go to hell without you in my life. And so can you, can you help me? Can you be my savior? And here's what spiritually happens. Jesus Christ takes what this man needs and gives it to him, which is his own righteousness. And then takes the sin and the identity of a sinner and puts it on himself. This is imputed righteousness, the doctrine of justification. When a person comes to Jesus Christ, not only are they forgiven. I sound like Barney Fife today, my voice. Not only are they forgiven. But watch this. Now They are now justified. They have been presented judicially before a holy God as if they've never sinned. Praise God for that. And so God did not raise Jesus from the dead to justify you if your church justifies you. He, he, watch, he was raised for our justification. He didn't raise Jesus Christ up from the dead if your good works justify you. He did not raise Jesus up from the dead if your baptism justifies you. And so the point here, the phrase that we look at, that we are in need of forgiveness. And because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's access to that. Now, there's a very dangerous phrase here in our text. Look back, if you would, at 1 Corinthians 15. Pick it up in verse number 17 again. This is only point number one. And if Christ be not raised, watch this phrase here. Your faith is vain and ye are, watch this phrase here, 
yet in your what? Sins. Okay, it's a very dangerous phrase. The phrase in your sins is repeated in Ephesians chapter 2 a little bit more thoroughly, where it says in verse number 1, and you hath he quickened or brought to life who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, trespasses are slightly different than sins. Trespasses is that, uh, any hunter knows what this means. No trespassing. You read the sign, you look at that big 14-point buck, watch this, and you walk over the line. Are you all here? I'm not going to mention any names. Not online. And you trespass onto property that is not yours, that you're forbidden to go to. That is trespassing or the Bible trespasses. It is a known boundary that you said, I I shouldn't cross it, but I'm going to cross it. Every sinner, because of sin, walks over and trespasses. Okay, you all with me this morning? And so as you look at this, as the Bible declares, when you are born, you are born in sin. If you die in sin, there's a penalty for that death. See, you watch this. There's only two people, two types of people. People that are in their sins or people that are in Christ. That's it. If you die in your sins, you go to hell. If you die in Christ... You go to heaven. Those two phrases, in Christ, in sins, is all through the New Testament. And so, ladies and gentlemen, that's why uh, that there's a system people that come up with. They know they need forgiveness. They, they know they're alienated from God. They know that they are sinners. They know they know they're undone. And so they come up with systems of human thought and religion and find out ways to be forgiven or be justified. And they've done this through centuries. Unbiblical ways. That you just go to church and then you can be forgiven. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that if you go to church, you're going to go to heaven. Are you all here? Well, wait, 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 wait. What about baptism? I said this in the Bible study a couple weeks ago. You can be baptized in every creek and every pond in Hancock County and know every tadpole by name and die and go to hell. Why? Because baptism cannot remove your sin judicially. It, it doesn't have the power. We're going to baptize. That has nothing to do with salvation. For, for salvation has everything to do with a representation of what Christ did. It is a confessing of what Jesus Christ did for you. The death and the burial and the resurrection. People say, well, I just need to be elevated. What does that mean? Elevated to what? You can be elevated. You can go elevators all you want. And be elevated spiritually. It has nothing to do with salvation. These are different. You can be, okay, for a Muslim, you have to be a terrorist possibly. And some Muslim teaching, you have to be a terrorist in order to be guaranteed. And even that, according to the Quran, does not guarantee you salvation. Here's what, can we just say this? That doesn't matter if you're Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, Greek, it doesn't matter where you are. Every man that has ever been born across this world needs one thing, forgiveness. Why? Because there's a fear of being alienated by God because of guilt. And so Jesus Christ, because of the resurrection, according to the text, we are forgiven. We are not in our sins if you've, got, if you've accepted him as Savior. Praise God. Number two, because of the resurrection, verse 14, and if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. And watch this phrase here. And your faith is also what? Now, the word vain simply means empty, has no value. How many have ever had one of those days? <laughs> you know, it's like one of those days you say, what did I even get done today? Okay, Just like you, 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 your whole day was just vain. You wasted your day. Listen, your life would be vain, empty, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Christ be not risen, your faith is also vain. Now, I don't know about you. Many of us have been lied. How many have ever been lied to? Okay. Scammed. Okay. Okay. Uh, we all have put our faith and trust in something that wasn't trustworthy. All of us have. If you lived in this world, they let you down. Someone hurt you. Someone let you down. Someone lied to you. Someone that you trusted was not trustworthy. Now, Instead of saying here, the Apostle Paul, negatively that our, our, that, our, that our faith is not vain, we can say positively that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our faith is absolutely true. In other words, in other words, Jesus is trustworthy. 
And, and I believe that, 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 that there's a, in the heart of everyone that's ever been born, there's this want of someone you can trust, someone that is going to tell you the truth, someone that is not going to lie to you. And when you get a hold of a book called the Bible, and you know that every word, every letter is absolutely true, that'll change your life. Amen. Has no errors. It has no, no, it's not misleading you. It's not lying to you. It's not going to say, oh, I forgot about you. No, there's nothing in the Bible that's false. Now, praise God for that. Because Jesus Christ, who is the word of God, according to 1 John chapter number one, is trustworthy. So the death of Jesus Christ proves his love for us. And the resurrection proves the power of that Jesus has demonstrated over every enemy that we have. And the Bible says the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. And so there is someone you can count on. There is someone that is trustworthy. There is someone that will never leave you nor forsake you. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, the apostle Paul giving the testimony, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul saying, you know what? I've got something to live for. I am trusting someone that will not lie. I am trusting someone that declared truth when he came out of that grave no other false prophet ever came out of that grave jesus did destroy this temple in three days and i will raise it up amen Amen? Amen. praise god number three because of the resurrection the witness of the gospel is true verse 15 the bible says yay and we are found false witnesses of god if there was no resurrection the apostle paul would be a what a false witness If there was no resurrection, the apostle Paul would be a liar. And he says, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up. So if he didn't raise him up, then I'd be a liar, Paul said. And so when you look at this, you'll find because he rose from the dead, the apostle Paul's message was true. Because he rose from the dead, and if I'm preaching out of the Bible this morning, this message is absolutely true. And I think our young people are being taught today that there is no absolute truth. That there is is no place that you can find. And even a progressive Christian today, the whole movement today, that all have one major tenet in common. There's many different factions of progressive Christianity. But one of the main tenets that all agree with is that they agree that the Bible is not the only place you find God's word. For the progressive Christian, they believe truth is everywhere. Truth is in the trees. Truth is in each other. Truth is in the animals. It's a cleaned up version of New Age mysticism. And the progressive Christian today is following the same narrative that the culture is following, that there are no absolutes, that if you are a boy, you could become a girl, even though you were a boy. Listen, gender is not binary. I know that's not a popular message. I know people don't want to hear that. And I know people are sensitive to that. But ladies and gentlemen, if you're a boy, you're a boy. If you're a girl, you're a girl. And though you can manipulate your body to be the other, you cannot change what you are. So the point this morning is wrong and, and uh, is, is becoming right and right is becoming wrong. And there's this, this huge uh, evolution of situation ethics and activity that is showing that there are no absolutes. And when there are no absolutes, ladies and gentlemen, we are in trouble. Trouble. Now, without the conviction that there are absolutes and those absolutes cannot be shared It made the basis for society, which, by the way, is being suppressed. The Romans chapter 1, the Bible says they hold the truth, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that's happening today. Well, you can't find hardly any truth today. The only end will be anarchy where everyone does that which is right in his own eyes. They do right. They just decide what right is. Now... The Apostle Paul says, I'm not lying to you. I saw him. He was seen of over 500 
the apostles saw him. And Jesus walked into this dark, sinful, depraved world and said, I am the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Many believe there's many ways to heaven. That's just the Christian way. There's only one way. So because of the resurrection, we are forgiven of our sins and have access to forgiveness. Number two, because of the resurrection, our faith is absolutely true. Because of the resurrection, the witness of the gospel is true. Number four, because of the, I like this one, because of the resurrection, we have hope and we have purpose. I don't know about you. It's nice to have something to do with this life. In verse 19, it says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ. In other words, if this is only about being a better you. If this is all just about being a better person in this life. If this is the only thing that we're living for in this life only. Here's what the byproduct of that is. We are of all men most miserable. Listen, listen, listen. Our preaching, the Apostle Paul is now declaring, is not in vain. It's full. Our, our preaching is meaningful. Our preaching has been validated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our preaching is valuable. Our preaching is significant. And since he is raised from the dead, Jesus Christ reigns as king. And so all of our obedience, all of our love, all of our witness, everything that we do for Jesus Christ has got hope. That's why the Bible, even the Apostle Paul, beaten five times, shipwrecked, suffered in the deep. He was, he was, he was hurt. He was uh, betrayed. And here's what he said about all that hardship. He says, for our light affliction, is what just for a moment, worketh for us a far exceeding eternal weight of glory. He says, this is nothing. Listen, as late, ladies and gentlemen, listen. There is in every one of us a longing that our lives are well spent. And that we're doing something with our lives that goes beyond this grave. And that our lives count for something. And that our lives are useful and that our lives have significance. And and we will never come to the end of our days by giving all of our life to Jesus Christ. We'll not be empty. We'll not say, I wish. We'll not say that's a pointless Thing to do. No, 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 no. Paul knew this. And so, because of the resurrection, there is hope. I'll give you the problem with people that do not believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Because number five, verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, if it's only about this life, watch the last part of that verse. We are of all men, that's everyone, most what? Now, number five, because of the resurrection, we're not miserable. Now, I know maybe some of you feel like that. Some of you look like that. (laughs) I'm kidding. But because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are of, we, we do not have to be miserable people. The happiest people in the world to be Christians, believers. Amen? We ought not to be miserable. And the Bible talks about those that have no hope. So if it's all about a better life now, yeah, I guess you could say we would be miserable. Okay? Now think about misery. Think about people that are in misery. Think about how many people are miserable today. Money, by the way, cannot mask permanently misery. Case in point, you can have all the money in the world in Hollywood and be just a miserable person. You can have all the friends and still be miserable. But had it not been for the resurrection, we would be like all men. The Bible used the word most miserable. And so the world has an answer. Okay, now we got an answer. Okay, we know that we're miserable. Okay, they know they're miserable. You, you look at... You look at some of the rock stars, you look at the stars of Hollywood, and, and they have their little star there on Hollywood Boulevard, and, and their na- name is going to go down in, in history as a star that died. But they're miserable people. So they have an answer. They know they're miserable. They got an answer. And the Bible really actually declares the answer they attempt to, 
to, to, to grab at. In Proverbs, the Bible says in 31.7, Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. So, I'm miserable, so I better get another drink. I'm miserable, so I better get another shot. I'm miserable, so I better take another hit. Are you all here? So why? Because it is a masking of the misery. Now listen, this is the world's answer to misery. Take another medication. Take another drug. Take another, take another hit. Take something else to relieve your misery. Are you all with me this morning? And don't leave here saying, well, he's against medication. I'm for medication. If it's good. I'm saying this. You cannot take spiritual misery and remedy it with a medication. You cannot take spiritual uh, misery and remedy it by another hit of alcohol. That's what the world's answer is. It will not take it away misery, but that's what they try to do. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 14, 13, even in laughter, the heart is sorrowful. I used to be a drinker. I used to go to the parties. In fact, the next part of the verse, and the end of the mirth is heaviness. A mirth is a social merriment. It's a, it's a high excitement, a pleasurable moment, gathering around people. It's a party. <laughs> I go to a party. Everybody's working for the weekend, a song we used to sing in the 80s. We all hear some of you remember that. Okay? Blow all your money in a Friday night binge, right? And you wake up just as miserable, only you have a headache and a hangover and scars. But is it attempt? To deal with the misery. It's an attempt to remove the misery. I'll go to a party. And that's why the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 7.12 that it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. What does that mean? It's better to go to a funeral than a party. Well, I don't like funerals. I know that. But there's a reason a funeral is better than a party. Because the Bible says the living will lay it to heart. You realize when you go to a funeral, you think about things you don't think about when you're at a party. Because even laughter, the heart is sorrowful. We were all misery. We were all misery, drinking and misery. Drinking because of mourning. Drinking because of heartache. Waking up miserable. Some of you remember those days. You're living in misery. You have to live with the decisions you make, the scars that you put, the people you've hurt. Misery, misery, misery. The world's answer to misery is more money, more alcohol. The Bible gives in the book of James, woe unto the rich man. His his, his silver and gold is cankered. It goes on to say in that uh, last part of that verse, in verse number three, you have heaped treasures to yourselves for the last days. People that are just gathering things. They want to live one more day than their neighbor. Y'all hear? I'm not against getting things prepared. I'm not trying to say you ought not to have some things for that rainy day. But I am saying that it will not take away your misery. No matter how much you have in the bank or how much you have stored. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if there was none, we would be like all men, most miserable. That's why when we sing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I just get excited. I mean, when I think about when those clouds roll back, and that trumpet sounds, and we leave this world, and our bodies are changed into a glorified body, the graves that, uh, uh, of the those that were dead in Christ come out of those graves, and we're going to meet the Lord in the air. Woo! Man, that's going to be a day. But because of the resurrection, we're not miserable people. So number one, number one, Because of the resurrection, we're forgiven of our sins. We have access to that. Because of the resurrection, our faith is absolutely true. Because of the resurrection, the gospel is true. Because of the resurrection, we have hope. We have meaning. I don't know about you, but boy, I tell you what, the older I get, the more I'm so thankful that I'm not only in Christ, but I'm part of the work of the Lord. And everyone can be a part of the work of the Lord. You don't have to be a full-time pastor to be a Part of the work. Because of the resurrection, we're not miserable. And lastly, these are basic needs. Watch this. Because of the resurrection, it proves that there is life after death. Oh, this is good. This is really good. Look in verse number 18. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ, or those that are dead, watch this, are what? 
If there's no resurrection, he's using it in a negative sense. If there's no resurrection, everyone that's ever died has perished. But since there is a resurrection, they're alive. So I, 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 again, I'm picking on the progressives here today. I'm picking on the progressive theology today. I got, there's there's several, several tenets or commandments in the progressive Christian movement. And I really strongly encourage you to be very careful because it's very subtle in what they're teaching in seminaries and mainstream theological seminaries today and churches today. But here's the chapter of one of the titles. Gully wrote a book on the tenets of progressive Christianity. And one of the tenets is that life in this world is more important than the afterlife. Wow, really? So an answer uh, against that is very interesting. And I'm going to just read a little bit here. For progressive Christians, humans have a real problem, do you think? But it's not that they are rebellious sinners who have offended a holy God. Rather, the problem for humanity is that there is suffering, war, poverty, and disease, which is true. In other words, human problems are defined by progressives in purely horizontal terms, in parentheses, the way humans relate to the world or to fellow humans, in parentheses. And not in vertical terms, the way that man relates to God. As a result, the highest ideal of progressive Christianity can be nothing other than fixing present temporal problems. This is social justice is what it is. Speaking of eternity is seen as a distraction at best, the waste of time at worst. In fact, Gully laments the church's preoccupation with the over- emphasis on the afterlife and how fortunes are spent. I'm quoting, fortunes are spent saving people from the imaginary dangers of the imaginary places. So for a progressive Christian, which is in the main part of our cultural acceptance of theology today, is that put more emphasis on the here and now and ignore the hereafter. Now, the Bible is pretty clear that that is heresy. Because in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus speaking in Matthew 10, verse number 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Whoa. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So he said, you better... You better start thinking about the afterlife or after death. That's what he's saying. That's why the Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, verse number 2, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. That's a, that's a mindset. Ladies and gentlemen, watch this. What the Lord Jesus Christ says is you better get your mind on heaven. You better think about the afterlife. You better think about where you're going to go. And listen, anything other than that kind of thought will reduce us into just helping each other out, which is fine. And having a love for one another, which is absolutely fine. But don't take your eyes off heaven. You realize focusing on heaven reminds us of the brevity of our own life. Focusing on heaven reminds us. I'm 50. I'm almost, I can't believe this. I'm almost 54. I'm just a couple of months away. And some of you that are older than me, oh, you young kid, oh, I don't feel young anymore. I'm getting older. And I'm seeing, man, life goes by pretty quick. I mean, I feel like I'm 18. I act like I'm 18. But focusing on heaven reminds me of the brevity of life. Focusing on heaven prepares us for the certainty of judgment. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There's two judgments. One judgment is for the believer. The loss of rewards or the gain of rewards. The other judgment is the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20. And that is the loss of your soul. Focusing on heaven prepares us for the certainty of judgment. Focusing on heaven motivates us to live pure lives. There's a hope. The appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And focusing on heaven places suffering in a perspective. 
The Apostle Paul had that. He says, this is light affliction. Wait a minute. Light affliction? Paul, what? You were, you were beaten five times with 39 stripes, almost to the point of death. And you're saying that's light? Yeah. You were shipwrecked, yes. You were in hunger and perils, yeah. And all that, you're just saying that's light. Yes, it's light. Why is, why is it light? Because there is something bigger. It's okay. See, listen, your cancer, your heartache, your difficulty, your hardship that you're going through right now, listen, is light affliction. Why? This world's not our home. That's why those that are in Christ will live forever. And that's why they live as Christ lived. They're not perfect. They will enter one day into the city of God, a physical city. walking down the streets of pure, transparent gold. Twelve gates into that city. A river, a crystal sea, a throne, a light, choirs, angels. That's why Roger Lenhart's not dead. He's alive. Janelda's not dead. She's alive. Mick is not dead. He's alive. Sissy and Bob Schlumbaum, they're not dead. They're alive. Roberta, she's alive. Betty, you remember Betty? She used to come in and fold all the, all the bulletins. We were over at the Humane Society. She would come in with so much pain. She'd fold those bulletins. She had a whole stack of bulletins ready for everyone to get. She died. 63 years old. She's alive. Jim Giles is in heaven telling his jokes. And no one likes him in heaven either. <laughs> Not his jokes. Edna's in heaven. She's alive. J.R. and Norma Holbert, they're in heaven. Ken Hornick, him and his wife would sit over here, they're in heaven. Paul and Francis McIntosh, they're in heaven, alive. Donna Virginia Freed. <laughs> I can tell you stories about those two. They're in heaven. Tom Rathburn's in heaven. Grandma's in heaven. Marshall Cumberland, Connie. I can go on and on and on about those that are in heaven. They're alive. If there was no resurrection, there'd be no hope. So the greatest news in all the world is that there is life indeed after death. So here's the question. Are you saved? Are you saved? Well, I've been religious. I've been baptized. I'm a good person. All of which are good things. None of which can get you to heaven. The only way to heaven is Jesus Christ. Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, okay, how, how can I have eternal life? He said, you must be born again. He said, I, I can't do that. Said, why can't you? I'm asking, why can't you? Well, he said, well, I can't go back to my mother's womb. He says, no, it's, it's, not, it's not a physical, it's spiritual. Born of the Spirit. How does that happen? By trusting Christ and Christ alone. Realizing you're a sinner. Realize because of sin there's a penalty in hell. Realize that Jesus loved you and he died for all of your sins, past, present, and future. And he's willing right now to present you as if you've never sinned before a God that will judge. And you're going to want that justification. You stand before God with your own righteousness, you're going to hell. If you stand before God with Jesus' righteousness, you're going to heaven. That's justification. And all you have to do is accept him as your Lord and Savior, realizing you're a sinner. You want to be saved. 